This is part three of a three-part podcast. Have you ever wondered whether a particular book was really good or just so-so, and if you could trust the reviews online? When it comes to books related to permaculture, Permies has a large list of reviews for over 100 books. Perhaps you're considering a book for yourself or a friend, or you're just curious about what's out there. Stop by permies.com forward slash book and take a look at the book review grid and read some honest reviews, and hopefully you'll find the next book to add to your collection. It's me that, like, you know, a, a, how about an alternative uh, meaning to stepper? How about seriously experimenting with permaculture principles? Okay, that one's not bad. I like that one. That is good. That is good. Um, I mean, experimenting is kind of the core of what we're doing. And, right. uh, and I don't know. I think, I think the way that we live day to day is radically different than the way most people who are keen on environmentalists, on, on environmentalism lives day to day. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's that's why I was kind of like thinking about it. It's like it gives people who uh, the opportunity to come out and maybe just experience things in a different way than they've ever experienced before. And um yeah, oftentimes there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance for people who have grown up just in a normal suburban or urban existence um when they first you know, they, they just internalize. It's automatic that they, you do certain things, right? You just go flush the toilet, or you do this, or you, you know, you don't think about what time of day you use that power. Or you don't think about where it's coming from. Or you don't. And so there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance. You're like, oh, this thing that I've just automatically done my entire life and have taken for granted. Now all of a sudden we're thinking about it, right? And um, that's why it kind of hit me that part of what the separate program can be is for people who want to come out and actually like, you know, be in an environment where these things are being actively thought about on an ongoing basis. And maybe not all the solutions are perfect yet. That's why it's Wheaton Labs, right? It's like we're experimenting with, you know, the, the cutting edge of ways to um, adjust to all of this. But on the other hand, there's a lot of great things that have already been figured out and have been implemented. So, you know, you can come out and be part of that experiment and sort of like live in it for just a little bit and experiment with permaculture principles. And, um, you know, I still remember back in the 1990s, the first time I visited a permaculture site that had a composting toilet, first time I'd ever seen a composting toilet and going in to use a composting toilet for the very first time. It was like, whoa, this is a different experience, right? Right. Yeah, it's like, okay. So it was a little bit of a little bit of a thing just to be like, well, this this experience of going into a, a restroom that I have had my entire life, now it's different. And now I'm having to think about something that in the, my past I never thought about, which was when I sit down and flush a toilet, it goes quote away and I never think about it. <laughs> right? Right. No, no, and and now we've come. You've you've come so much further. Now the concept of uh, own your own shit, mm-hmm. as you're as you're trying to explain to others, and uh, and of course there's all the reluctance, the resistance, and stuff like that. All I'm trying to say is, 
I wish that the boots had more love than I can give. And, um, come and I want, I want to request that people come here and love the boots. <laughs> That's, I'm asking, I'm, I'm asking a thing. I, I'm, I'm requesting. And, uh, we have had people come out and love the boots. And, um, and I just, I love it when people come to love the boots. And then the, and then uh, they, they'll join the boot camp for half a day here or half a day there and, and participate in the projects. And I, and it seems like the people that do it enjoy it thoroughly. And, and it's a different experience. And so, um, I'm just, I, 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 I want some, I want people to come and do this. The other thing is, is that I'm kind of hoping that, uh, as, as the years pass, I mean, right now, I think we've got a pretty amazing place right now, permaculture wise. And of course, we have plans to make it 10 times more than it is, um, to make kind of a permaculture Disneyland. And, and, and it's kind of like, uh, um, I don't know. I think for all the sites in the United States, that um we might be in the top 10 list right now maybe i don't know alan you've been to quite a few of course you're building something that sounds absolutely amazing um you might be what you what you are building could turn out to be more amazing than what what we're building um the race is on we have a head start <laughs> yeah well, but you yeah. have funding that we don't have right <laughs> yeah. it's uh I mean, yeah, I mean, we, I guess what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out ways of creating examples of this at scale that people can come and visit. Scale is a big one. And I think not enough people think about scale. Yeah. And, uh, um, but yeah, all right. Uh, as I want, so I'm putting out the request for people to come out and share, love the boots, especially if there's, uh, if there are people out there that love to cook. I'd love to, I'd love to, to, to see people come out and do their special meals for the, for the boots from time to time. Um, I don't know, just how do we give more love to the boots? Um, and it's, and I think part of it is through the SEPR program. And, uh, so you know, come out and rent a cabin, do everything at your own pace, either love the boots or don't love the boots. Uh, join the boot camp when you want or when you don't want. And that's, uh, we also came up with what we called the Thistle program where, uh, people can bring their teenagers and, and do this. I think we set the age at 12 and up and, uh, they can pop into the boot camp. So if, if the parent and the kid is in the boot camp at the same time, they can do it. Uh, and, and for boot camp no, news, I gotta say, uh, Des has been on a few podcasts and those of who come out here, you've seen Des. Des hit the two year mark and he got his acre. And so, um, he, he's, uh, uh, he's taking a little time off right now because it's the holidays to go see family and friends and things. Um, but he'll be back in, uh, the spring. And then it comes the question of, you know, is he going to put full time into developing his acre or is he going to be in the boot camp half time? We'll, we'll find out in the spring, but he has his acre. That's, so he's the second person to have gotten his acre. The first one, of course, being Fred, and um, and Fred's still here. Fred's been here for over seven years now. Um, let's see. People keep asking uh, the boots to do more, so we keep having we keep, we share pictures of this and that and the other thing, and then people will say, "Well, why don't you do this?" And uh, it's like we just 
you know, it's on the list to do, you know, and it's like, but do it now. I want it. I need to know now because I want to do something similar and I need to know the numbers. And it's like, we just don't have enough people. And so like, uh, we've got uh, five people now in the boot camp, which I think is good for December. And, and I, I look. You know, I think our half-assed holidays are pretty cool, and we're doing the half-assed holidays right now, and they're, I think that they're so delightful. And, uh, and I'm keep hoping that it's like gonna make it so that we have more, more, you know, long-term boots in the boot camp. Um, but anyway, it's like, uh, there's so much to do. It's, you know, and, and it's like, so we're spread thin. And so, I get it. I, I wanna see those things done too. And yet, you know, priorities. We have to work on the higher priority stuff first. Um, don't know what else to tell you. All right. Um, going down, going down my list of, of things. Um, I, I thought I would want to mention real quick. We, we had that event here in October. Uh, and we, we had three projects simultaneously. It was, it was called a rocket mass heater workshop as opposed to our Rocket Mass Heater Jamboree. We're kind of switching to every other year for the Rocket Mass Heater Jamboree, but, you know, some people just have such an itch, they still want to do it. So um, we had this Rocket Mass Heater workshop here in October. We overhauled the Rocket Mass Heater in the library. Uh, we replaced the Rocket Mass Heater in the red cabin, and we replaced the Rocket Mass Heater in the wood shop. And um, I I have a lot to say about those three builds. There was a lot that we learned I want to talk about the experiences, but I think what I need to do is, is record a whole different podcast with the people that were more involved in, in those builds. And, um, but, uh, um, the library, uh, we basically redid the mass and, uh, we, we, um, made some modifications to the core, very, very slight modifications to the core. Uh, we took out a bunch of the experiments that had gone on, but, uh, the big thing is, is that, um, I, I, as we replaced the eight inch vertical exhaust with a six inch vertical exhaust, we moved it much closer to the barrel. And I, and I really think that this adds a tremendous amount of efficiency to the system when it is not running. And so, when the fire is out and then you've got this you got the mass giving off the heat i think that this new design does a tremendous amount to make the system even more efficient and so um i i, I want to talk about it because i i kind of feel like and and grin i know i've mentioned this podcast before that i think that if if i were to say a rocket mass heater uh, helps you to heat with half the wood, then, uh, we probably would have 10 times more buy-in. But I can't stop myself from saying you heat your home with one-tenth of the wood, which then people go crazy. They just, they just go stupid and, uh, and say the most ridiculous things. And they don't, they think it's snake oil and bullshit and hype and, and, and whatever else. And it's like, I got to tell you, Alan, I honestly believe that some of the stuff that we're doing now could potentially take us to a point where we would passively be able to um, heat with one-twentieth of the wood 
and and uh, and I know that that just hurts my cause, and yet I can't stop fiddling and tinkering in this space. But let me, you know, you you agree with one tenth the wood as a general principle for a properly designed rocket mass heater uh, compared to a conventional wood stove. Uh, can I, you you agree with that part? I think that's in the right order of magnitude for when you say, just to be clear for everybody, when we're saying a conventional wood stove, that was what was pretty much available around in the 1980s. Sure. Um, and um, so we've come down by an order of magnitude if you started with a um, 1980s standard wood stove and then you kind of like, you know, we, we went through the all the numbers of the other forms of wood heat earlier um, coming down from there. Right. Yeah. Fair, fair, fair. Okay. Now, let me let me introduce one idea to see if I'm going to take a, that rocket mass heater that's in your head right now, and I'm going to say the moment that the last ember is out. There's zero fire, zero ember, zero of that. All of a sudden, kabunk, the the exhaust is sealed at the ceiling. Now, does what what happens to the efficiency of that rocket mass heater? Is it fair to say that if that thing magically happens, there's no need for the human discipline because we're using magic. And I know as an engineer, the word magic is offensive, but I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, uh, discuss, you know, throw something out there, throw an idea out there. In which case, um, no danger of any exhaust kind of problems or whatever. And the moment that you start the fire, it um, magically unplugs itself. Um, would such a system with this magic in it, would it heat a home with uh, half the wood of the rocket mass heater that does not have this magic? I would say it would be less. How much less? I don't know. Um because, you know, for those who, who, are, who aren't familiar with, you know, the reason that might work would be because um, there's a chimney effect and uh, the residual heat in the system can continue to drive the chimney effect, mm-hmm. thereby pulling warmed air out of the building, up the chimney and out, and pulling colder air into the building to displace or make up the air pulled up by the chimney. And so the idea is if you completely stop that chimney effect, that now all of a sudden you end up without that effect. And of course, me, my very first, my very first thought is if you remember, Paul, in the whole discussion about makeup air and indoor air quality, my, one of my questions was about, um, and we're looking at, um, the question of healthy people in filled up buildings in the wintertime and how much Ventilation and how many air exchanges per hour they need in order to have high, ah, true, high indoor air quality. So 
One of the things I would say is in this particular setup, I would, I would ask the question of what effect we're having on indoor air quality if we're in a sealed building with no other say, that, heat exchanger, makeup air, whatever. That is a very good point. That is a very good point. At the same time, what I want to do is, is for the, for the, the sake of the, the, cause I think that what we've done here is we've done something rather profound. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, and I feel like, and, and the pr- profound thing is, is that we, we have a bit of a passive plug. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's not entirely passive, but it, it's, uh, well, I'm, Better to say it's entirely passive, but it's not, it's not a perfect plug, but it's very pluggy. And, uh, which, which is a profound improvement dominantly in the efficiency of the system when there's not a fire. Mm-hmm. So, um, basically what's going to happen is, is that without the plug with, with a, a passive system as is, then, um, uh, not only does air move through the whole system and it gets pulled out of the room through the whole system and taken outside, but even more, that is room temperature air going through the mass, taking up the heat that's in the mass and taking that heat outside. And even more, when that slows down and it gets cold outside, the cold air outside comes in through the chimney right. into the home. And so right. it's like if there was this magic plug, yep. then I believe it would make it so that you would heat with half the wood of a regular, of a, of a high-quality rocket mass heater. So this is an interesting concept. And, of course, if you you remember, one of the things I was putting in the carbon negative was that the air quality and what was called the ventilation was separate from the heat, right? When we're doing radiant heat, then the best way of going about it is to separate ventilation from heat because we're radiantly heating the space. And so I've got like a um, the tiny home that I was talking about earlier is using annualized thermal inertia, but it's also using a specific form of passive geothermal uh, ventilation tube, which pre-warms the air coming in and uses a chimney effect in the building itself. So that's designed to drive ventilation and do fresh air exchange. But if you don't want to lose heat out the chimney from the rocket mass heater's thermal mass, you want it to radiate into the building. So what I'm just saying you're thinking my way through is using either a DOAS with a um, ERV, which is a DOAS dedicated outdoor air system, which is like uh, with an ERV, an energy recovery ventilation, in other words, a heat exchanger. Mm-hmm. And what we could do is we could make certain that we were getting enough fresh air into the building for the people to be healthy, right? But what you're looking at is – a way of minimizing loss out of the thermal mass so that we can, we can continue to get maximum efficiency out of the radiant heat system. And I think that that's, that's possible. I think that that would be very interesting. I would really like to metric the indoor air quality, um, and make certain that 
when we are thinking about rocket mass heaters, we're thinking about them as an integral part of the larger building science going on to make certain that the indoor air quality and the makeup air question is being um, addressed in a way that is complementary to the radiant heat system. So, oh, we've got, you know, that, that that's opening up a whole nother door on all of this. Yep. The, the, the thing I wish to do is, okay, at the moment, while, while the topic is delicious, I'm going to put a cork on that topic for just okay. a moment, which is kind of funny, you know. <laughs> Uh, but I'm going to cork that topic, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to put a bow on the topic I was just doing. We did an overhaul of the rocket mass here in the library, and I think I think we came up with something profound, a, a further. It, it's an optimization that we were working on last year, so it's in the free heat movie. You see the stuff about the juice box. And, and there was all the hope of the juice box. And then we ended up, like, the juice box ended up working, but we had to do it a little bit differently than we originally set out to do. And, and I kind of wonder if there's still a way to do it the original way, but that's another conversation for another day. The, the important thing is, is that with the rocket mass here in the library, I think that we've done some things there that could make it that could make rocket mass heaters everywhere even more efficient. And and it has to do with how literally plugging the ceiling. We we actually had an experiment in the library to do that, and it was a total failure. And I've talked about that before, and the failure has to do with human discipline. People forget that they plugged it, and that leads to a bunch of, you know, uh, smoke. If you start it without unplugging it, and and uh, and it's like it's it's terrible, it's awful, and it's unacceptable. So we've we've taken that out, but with the library, we have installed something which has a rather passive plug, and and I I I kind of feel like there's probably twenty more experiments to do to come up with an even pluggier passive plug but um the 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 point is is that i i want to do a podcast to talk about what we did but it's going to have to wait the thing is is that just with the with the overhaul that we did in the library i think we've uncovered some rather profound things and and i want to explore that at a later time um but you know, this is kind of what we do. We're constantly experimenting, and I should probably leave it alone, but I just can't. I'm stupid that way. And and it's like I've got so – I mean, I think rocket mass heaters as a whole still has some room for optimization. And and then this is the new – this is this is this is the new place to optimize further is is to be like how do we make it so that there's less heat exchange when there's not a fire. And, and by heat exchange, I mean with the, uh, the roof. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, you know, there's, there's ups and downs and ins and outs and there's, there's, there's stuff to explore there. But I think that 
I, I think that it is plausible to travel this path and then end up heating your home with half or even less than half the wood of the uh, existing rocket mass heaters. But I need to – and mostly how I get that is like, okay, we've already got like a 93% efficient burn. That's measured, not calculated. Um and then it's like our exit temperatures, we're, we used to kind of lean towards 110 as an exit temperature, but now I think we're kind of leaning more towards the 120 to 160 range. We want to get a good strong draw, especially any place where there might be, um, a cold plug scenario. And yeah. so, which is not a home, which is going to be your wood shops and your cabins and, and things like that. Um, but, uh, um, so I think when it comes to exit temperature, we're already doing really, really well. And our burn efficiency is really, really good. And then the last frontier is when there's not a fire, which is going to be like 99% of the time, then uh, to have the system be more efficient. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, then there was the red cabin. We... um uh, replaced that and, and we did, we, we took a lot of video of that because we kind of thought, oh no, the people over in Europe, they're going to be so cold. We'll make a video showing a simple burn and, and like, here's the materials cost of about 200 bucks and, and stuff like that. But then of course things changed in Europe and, uh, you know, things, you know, after the event was over, things went very slowly here. Um, and there's still some fascinating stories there. The the mass is a little bit of a pebble cob hybrid, um, which has some very fascinating stories with it. And uh we did a a beautiful riser in it um that I want to talk about. Um and uh now we're going uh, there's there's a, a final piece that we're going to do which is we've got a barrel in place now, but we're going to pop that barrel out. And we're going to put something fabricated in. And, uh, and I want to talk about that, but it's like there's, so the red cabin has a lot going on. The wood shop has, uh, uh, that was the third build during this event. And it has a lot of fascinating elements to it as well. Um, and, uh, that's a seven inch batch box system. And it had a, it has a component, has a couple of components in it that are new to me. One is the plunge style door. And it's kind of like the idea is to do the casserole door, but let's do something that is, uh, like steel and insulation with a window instead of the, the casserole door, which w- has been a universal failure for us. Um, and so it's like uh this plunge door is an it's similar but different and it's 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 rather fascinating. This is also a batch box system. Um the box itself does not have insulation. It's it's fire brick wrapped in cob. Um but since you're burning five times more wood, you're going to get a lot more heat. And so then you're basically heating this mass that is the fire brick and the cob around the fire brick. Um, and, uh, uh, and then it goes into a, uh, a, a riser 
Um, and it's going to do what Peter Vandenberg calls the ram's horn in there to help mix the gases really well. Um, and then go up into a triple barrel system to extract a lot of heat because it's a wood shop. So it is a slightly different design. Um, and it's got some interesting elements in it. It also has, uh, this auxiliary, uh, uh, air feed to it. Um, and uh, the important thing is, is that the exhaust gases are totally clear. And so what a strong win. And it heats the space quickly. It's, it's been, it's been really good to get it in there. And we've had some really cool temperatures. We've done a lot of, so I want to talk, I want to talk about all three of these builds in great detail. Just not right now. <laughs> but, but I kind of feel like there's some very profound stuff that we're doing, and I want to get that profound stuff into a podcast so other people can understand it. And um, and and that's kind of part of what's happening here is that um, we're being spread a little bit thin. And again, I, I wish that we had. Oh, and in fact, this is my next item is to talk about the work trade for the summer event. So you're going to be our PDC instructor again this summer, uh, yes. 2023. We're doing the the PDC, the PDJ, and the Skip event again this summer, and um, all three events I think are are strong, strong events. And um, uh, and at the <clears throat> at the same time, uh, what we have done the last couple of years is said uh, if you come and you're part of the boot camp for this period of time, then you can attend these events for free, and. Um, uh, the first person that's doing that is arriving uh, here in uh, a couple of weeks. Um, but if you want to do that, for those that want to do that, and we had one year where we did this, and I think we had like, I don't know, was it was it uh, eight or nine people that did the trade? They they came and they were here in the boot camp for all the time. In fact, one of those people came. And they were in the boot camp for that period of time. They attended the summer events. And now one of those people from, I believe it was two years ago, mm-hmm. uh, is now going to be your assistant instructor at the PDC. Is that yeah. correct? So, yeah. Well, yeah, he's, uh, Matthew is going to come back as an assistant and, uh, Chase, who has been, Chase Jones, who's been, uh, working as an assistant last year is coming back as a full, instructor this uh this coming year um chase continues to um work as a full-time professional permaculture designer doing all kinds of work um and he's got all kinds of great experience with gis and you know professional design process and everything so he's coming and um and then matthew's going to come as an assistant and um paul i don't know if you were aware of this but i have Talk to Helen, and she has agreed to come back as a guest instructor for the 2023 um, PDC. <laughs> Delightful. Delightful. Hey, this is T. Blankenship. Have you seen the new video of Wheaton Labs? It is permaculture awesomeness with all new and improved things like more rocket mass heaters, easy bake coffin, Willy Wonka, rocket cooktop 2.0, and the truly passive greenhouse. To see more, go to permies.com slash tour. Again, that is permies.com slash tour. Um, uh, I'd heard that there were discussions yep. and I think 
Because I think that the first year you did this, I had lined up like four or five guest instructors. And uh, I thought they were all really good. And, um, uh, but you are so adamant that your course must be taught this way. And, and your course is indeed so very packed that it doesn't leave a lot of room for guest instructors. And so it's, it's difficult to add people in, <clears throat> but, um, it's, we had some lovely guest instructors. It's, it, it's just that my, I, I'm, I'm, created a permaculture design certification course pointed at design professionals, which means that the level at which the course is taught is generally, say, senior undergraduate or or, or beginning graduate level course. And so there's not a lot of people who um, are ready to just show up and be a guest instructor and present at that level, uh, right. in terms of technical depth. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's, uh, of course, technical Helen, of rigor. Yes. Yeah. Technical rigor is going to be yeah. the, the, the primary thing there. Right. And, um, yeah, no, no, I, I understand it. Now I gotta say that, uh, if, if a person's, I think that we've kind of covered this in the past. So it's, it's designed for scientists and engineers. Uh, we also include architects and, uh, educators. Um, we've also included people that have listened to like at least 200 of these podcasts. Like if somebody's listened to 200 of these podcasts, they will do well. Um, Magdalene enjoyed it a lot. I don't think she's listened to any of my podcasts, uh, nor is she a scientist and engineer, but when she took your PDC, I believe that she had been here as a boot for a full year. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that that prepared her for it. Um, but I do think that if people, I don't know, there's a certain level, like if you've read eight permaculture books, let's say, I think you, I think you'll do okay. To but me, I think a lot, a lot about whether you, are thinking in in that way and and have enough foundation in the basic sciences to follow what we're doing because yeah. I, I'm assuming when you come in the door that you have the foundations in physics, chemistry, biology, and so forth. I don't have right. time to reteach basics. Yeah, and we talk thermodynamics. We talk, yeah. We I mean, and you know, we we run simulations of complex nonlinear dynamical systems and the whole thing. So it's yeah. It's uh, it's designed that way, and there are, there are people who come in and they don't have all of that, and some of that goes over their head, but they still gather a lot of of, of useful information out of the course. Mm-hmm. What I would say is, if you want to if you want to be able to like come in the door and understand 100% of what's going on, then yes, it's just understand that there it, it, you know we're talking about people who have. Um, that educational preparation to be able to handle all of it. Yep. How about a person who has taken a PDC before? Um, I think they'll find that my approach is to teaching is very different than anything they've seen anywhere else. No, no, I agree with that. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say like, if, if a person, if a person has read only one permaculture book, Mm-hmm. They will find your course to be 
overwhelming. It, it will be, it, it will not be an enjoyable experience. Well, no, I've had people come in who have the educational background as an, as an engineer. Oh, or, no, no. Okay. So let's you know, say as, a, as an architect or whatever who've never read anything about permaculture, true. don't know what permaculture is, and they do great. As a matter no. of fact, it's a transformative experience for them. It reframes the way they think about design. So, um, and I'm, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, I'm trying to say that there are, there are, there's more than one avenue. Rather yeah. than having the scientific background, the, 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 the foundation, the scientific foundation mm-hmm. to be able to take the course, that's one way. Another way, another door in is going to be rather than having the scientific foundation to have the permaculture foundation is that if you've got permaculture foundation, you have the potential to be able to enjoy this course even though you don't have the scientific foundation. That has been my experience from visiting with people who have taken the course. Yeah. At the same I, time, I, people who have taken the course and they don't have either of those two things, then uh, they are going to feel like they're trying to drink from the fire hose. It's going to be yeah. an uncomfortable experience. There's probably some validity to that statement because if you are – if you have a lot of familiarity with permaculture concepts, then, yeah, I'm reframing a lot of them. I've actually reframed a lot of the tools of permaculture, so you have to relearn that. But at least if you already have the concepts, mm-hmm. then mostly you're having to grapple with more advanced applications and the technical stuff I'm going with. If you already are fairly comfortable with the technical, then you are only grappling with the new way of employing all that information in regenerative design, if you have neither, then, yeah, you're probably over on full overload. Right, right. So one of the avenues I was I was painting a new picture is, is saying, like, if you've already attended a PDC, mm-hmm. I think that you'll do okay here taking yeah. this PDC in addition to your previous PDC. Yeah. Um, uh, I would even go so far as to say, um, some of the online PDCs being offered might be sufficient to, as preparation for this PDC. Yeah. I've had people take other PDCs as a prep to come and take mine. Yeah. Yeah. But I would think that if you have, if you, if, if you're missing, if you have not taken a PDC, you have not read six P, uh, books on permaculture and you have, you do not have this, this uh, scientific foundation, you will be uncomfortable. Yeah. So it'll be like drinking from the fire. By saying this, by the way, I'm not trying to imply that I'm teaching a quote unquote better PDC than everybody else. That's not what I'm trying to imply. There are some people doing amazing jobs of teaching PDCs that are focused on um, farm design and homesteading and so forth. And for that audience, that's exactly what they need. Yeah. Um, what I'm really focused on, I realized my, one of my unique capabilities was to engage with a highly technical audience that was mostly, you know, scientists, engineers, architects, urban planners, uh, agroecology professionals, people who have like, you know, master's degree in soil science or master's degree in agroecology and so forth. Um, mm. it's not unusual for us to have people who have Masters and PhDs in engineering, uh, people who've been in architecture for a few decades, that sort of thing. Um, and so 
this PDC is really designed to engage them and allow and, and to extend the tools that were originally developed around homesteading and small scale farms into larger scale professional contexts. Yes. Yeah. I, I and, and and I think the origins of this course in many ways had to do with um a PDC that uh I helped organize and put together. I was there and like about 40 people, 40 pod people, people listening to this podcast came to that PDC and they were frustrated. They were bored. And it was a decent PDC. It's just that it was designed for people that weren't familiar with permaculture. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, these 40 people that came to Montana to take a PDC that listened to all of my podcasts to that point, they were, they were bored because, um, they kind of felt like they knew all this stuff already. And so they will not be bored at your PDC. I know this because I've had a lot of people that have listened to all my podcasts come and attend your PDC and they found it magnificent. And so it is a different flavor. And so just as I think my podcast, my position on permaculture is a different flavor of permaculture. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot. We cover an awful lot. Um, I had a, a PhD in atomic physics come take the course and his, his, uh, what he said at the end was that he was quote, stunned by the depth and breadth of the information covered. Right. And I, and, and it does, when we've had podcasts where we've kind of, um, talked to people after the, the PDC to kind of get their feedback in the past. And, um, the feedback, uh, for this last one was the, pretty much the same, but we didn't make a podcast. And then, and, uh, that was that, um, it's like they gained a lot of information and yet they're still hungry for more. I mean, it was like, it's like they were successfully drinking from the fire hose. Mm-hmm. As opposed to <laughs> what most people do, <laughs> unsuccessfully drinking with the fire hose. We, we try to very carefully structure the information so that as information is handed to you, it's put into a larger context so that you don't feel like you're just being overwhelmed by huge amounts of information without anywhere to put it into a large, you know, to put it. It's like if you get too much, unre- too many unrelated facts, without structure to it, then what do you do with all that? And, you know, so we were very careful to try to uh, set it up where you see the big picture and then understand how all the information we're going through is in that larger context so that you, you it's less overwhelmed with that when you do it that way. So now we've done uh, quite a few of the people have come to the boot camp. Um, they put in a, a few months in the boot camp and then they can attend the summer events. We're doing the same thing this year. You would need to be here by February 13th in order to be able to attend all the summer events, including the PDC. Um, and uh, uh, it seems like a couple of years ago, we had a whole bunch of people show up and do exactly that. Uh, two years ago and last year, it seems like you offered an online course for all of the PDC students, including the work trade students. Um, and uh, do you want to tell people about, because I think you're doing it again this year, right? We are for 2023. Um, one of the things that I do when I'm developing any new course or book is um, I like to teach through it 
um, in order to get that feedback and refine it. And back in 2021, last year, we did um, eight weeks uh, pre-course uh, in Observation for Design, which is a book that I've been developing. And we're going to do it again. But this, this time we're going to do it, I'll have all 14 weeks ready. And um, so we're going to go through Observation for Design. And so it is available, will be made available on the digital store as a standalone course. We're working on getting that set up right now. If you're not coming for the, to the PDC, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer it as uh, a free course uh, for uh, people who sign up for the PDC. And one of the things I'll note, I mean, I'll tell you what the course is here in just a second, but I'll, I'll, I'll note that when we did this in 2021 and we had students arrive at the PDC having taken the first eight weeks of this, that I realized that they were in many ways much better prepared coming in the door than any other group um, that I had worked with. Um, and, and so where this book, Optimization for Design, which is a college-level textbook, came from was me training professional designers to do regenerative design and realizing over and over again that one of the challenges was that um, they had never been trained to actually see what was going on in complex systems. Uh, we could take them out and begin to do like a site survey or any kind of something, even like in the built environment, go in and look at a building, for example, and they didn't have the tools to analyze and take in the information and to observe and see the system dynamics that were going on around them. And I was like, wow, how can we train people to be regenerative designers if they cannot observe and understand the dynamics of complex systems that they are trying to design in? And so I was like, well, how in the world am I going to teach people to do that? And it's like, well, you can't actually lecture that into existence. Um, that's uh, It's an observational muscle is what you need to develop. So the only way you can develop your, extra, your observational muscle is to exercise it. And therefore, that's what the book is. Five days a week, um, the students go outside for about 45 minutes to a site. And every day, the book has prompts to um, help you Think about and observe, and you are going through the process of journaling, drawing, and mapping. And then we come back together once a week, and we tell stories and share about our experiences, um, and it helps you with that whole I mean, the whole idea we're looking at here in that is that professional designers oftentimes have to work in larger teams, and therefore they have to be able to not only observe and internalize what they're seeing, they also need to be able to take and share what they have observed with their design team to help the design team make informed design decisions. So the daily exercises out in the field, journaling, mapping, drawing, are building the, the observational muscle, coming back and sharing that in a group breakout with a couple of other students uh, and doing a short presentation on your observations is practicing 
that whole thing of how do you formulate your observations and share them with your design team. So it is, we're working towards a later in 2023 release of the book, and hopefully it can be used as a college-level textbook for professional designers once it is um, completed. So that will be starting in uh, February. Uh, we'll be starting through that book. So if people want to get signed up for the PDC, now's a good time, or... If they uh, show up here for the to do the work trade, we can get them yes. set up with that also. Correct. Uh, there's one other course that's very fascinating that you are setting up. I know that we're helping you get it all set up right now, yes. and that is the the Resilient Kitchen Squad. Right. Now, now's a good make your plug, man. Tell people yeah, about it. This one quickly. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, We've been working for a while, been working for a while with Michael, who has run my kitchen at events now for, ooh, since 2006. Um, and uh, he's another engineer who also happens to help me run the kitchen and teach um, about creating uh, nutrient-dense real food. And we kept on running into this whole thing about, uh, there are too many cookbooks. Everybody's stuck in this mode of, of, uh, of, of creating a grocery list and then, um, you know, picking a recipe, then creating a grocery list and going to the grocery store. And what I was really interested with was how do we make the kitchen an integrated part of uh, the full food system? And so this is taking a systems approach to the kitchen and how it fits into the larger context. So we're looking at how do we bring food into the kitchen from all the food production systems? How do we think about um, all the different ways of storing and using food? And then how do we recycle those nutrients into back into our um, production systems? Um, and so instead of, for example, um, having a lot of lots and lots of different recipes, we are working with things we call methods. And um, the method, once you learn the method, teaches you how to take what it is you have coming out of the production system and create a dish that maybe never existed before because, you know, it's it's custom to what you have in your pantry at that moment and create delicious nutrient-dense food that way that allows for you to use local nutrient-dense in-season food or foods that you have put into food storage. Um, it's a complete, I mean, I, I kept on fighting having, having to write this book because I was, it's like <laughs> there's so many kitchen books. There are so many, rest, you know, cookbooks and so forth. But always as we were teaching, people were like, ah, this is so different. This is, a, this is a whole different way of thinking about kitchen and how, you know, how, how do we learn more? And I was like, okay, so finally we're going to have to do this book. Um, and so that's what it is. The Resilient Kitchen Squad is going to be a 12-week uh, program where we are going to go live from the kitchen with multi-camera um, setup, and we are going to um, go over our approach and give students early access to many parts of the book as we develop it. And what we're really looking for here are people who are excited by that and who would like to be part of that conversation as we make certain that the way we're presenting this information really is uh, digestible and can um, and and works communicates, and um, so 
that's what we call it, the resilient kitchen squad. It's like if that idea is really interesting to you, then we'd love to have you jump in and um, be part of that whole that group as we explore together what it is to develop a resilient kitchen. You know, we call that the subtitle of the book is Real Food from Harvest to Table. And um, so we're, we're trying to create something very, very different than you've ever seen before in a book about the kitchen. Speaking of very, very different, I've got just two bits left that I want to talk about that are on my list. And uh, um, because this is, this is bits and bobs, so uh, I want to I want to transition into this this next one. Very different roundwood picnic table. So when you were here, mm-hmm. uh, it was being built, and then you had to flee, and then it got done. And I sent you some pictures of the final product today. Yes. Um. The thing is, is that this roundwood picnic table deserves a podcast of its own. Uh, and, uh, it's just a, it, it's a thing of beauty. It's a thing of art. I, I think that there are, there are a lot of things that were, uh, created at the PTJ this year that need a podcast of their own. Um, and as I'm talking about this picnic table, I've got like four things that have already popped in my head, but, but I'm going to limit myself to talking about the roundwood picnic table for now. I just think it's, it's rather amazing. The, uh, um, it's saddle joints to just make, uh, basically like a three log, two three log benches are made facing each other. And then there's a log that's placed on that. And then a little stumpy log, um, that's placed on that. Um, so let's see, three log bench. So there you got the three log bench, and then there's a log placed on that, and then the tabletop wood is placed on that. And it's split wood. It's split long pieces of logs um, that are then planed down to a flat surface. And so, I don't know, it's very, it's very simple. It's a very simple uh, you know, um, log bench, but it's also a beautiful piece of art. And I'm kind of thinking like, wouldn't it be wonderful to make more of these? Um, I, I just think it's delightful. So, um, I just wanted to mention it quickly. This, this roundwood timber framing, round, roundwood timber framing picnic table that is basically two three log benches facing each other and then tabley bits appear between the two three log benches kind of like that kinda not really but kinda mhm and so that's just a quick mention of it it exists you know where there's pictures posted at permies the final tidbit i want to talk about is gamcod and um I don't, I'm not sure if we mentioned a podcast, but if we did, it was last spring. And, um, it was, the idea was, is like, let's put together a Kickstarter to do this. And, uh, it'll be my most ambitious Kickstarter ever. 
but it would require $300,000 to do it at all. And um, the idea is that the, the, the original idea was something where um, we would hire five gardeners and pay them a lot of money and we would hire one manager to manage the project and one or two videographers to video the whole project. And uh, each gardener would be given an acre, and then uh, their instructions would be to grow a million calories on their acre. Now, it's possible with certain crops that if you have soil, you can grow five uh, to eight million calories. But this would be starting with dirt. And, um, and, and you wouldn't be allowed fertilizers, you know, like commercial fertilizers or anything like that. We would allow some fertility to be added in a permaculture way and things of that nature. But, and there would need to be some diversity of crops and things, but not animal systems. You could have animal systems in there, but you can't count the calories. Like you can't count the calories from eggs from chickens or the meat from chickens. You can't count those things. That, that was the project. That was the idea. And so we finally got to the point where it's like, okay, I think we might actually do this. We actually had a benefactor that was going to match all contributions. So if it only hit $150,000, he was going to put up $150,000. In fact, he was willing to let me hold the $150,000, and then if, if the Kickstarter failed, then I would have a gentleman's agreement to give it back. <laughs> but so if we raised $150,000, we would do this project. Um, so we put an enormous amount of time into setting this project up and, and defining things and getting things going and creating some of the graphics and, and doing a whole bunch of stuff to, to pull it off. And then it came to the point of like, okay, is the amount of pay that we're putting on the table going to be enough? So we said, who wants to be the gardeners? And we also put out stuff for the the managers and the videographers, but the key is who all wants to be a gardener and get all this money to just be gardening for one year at Wheaton Labs? And we got a, some people that signed up, but it wasn't nearly enough people. And uh, and so we rejiggered the thing and it gave it an $800,000 budget. And so we were putting a hundred thousand dollars on the table per person and um to be gardeners for this project still couldn't get enough people. So the note that I have today is to simply say the GAMCOD project is done. I mean we came up with some ideas about some possible variations to still try and do it, but it wasn't as glorious as the original project. And so we've dropped it. We're letting it go. And so that's that's all. That was my last note. I guess a sad note, a drag of a note, that we're gonna we're gonna let that project go. It was a very a very ambitious project. Mm-hmm. Um but uh the bottom line is is the um uh the Favican problem, you know. Um uh, a lot of people that are great gardeners, they don't, they, they, they've got a garden already. They don't want to move their life to Montana, uh, for one year, you know, and, and then what? You're out in the middle of the boonies of Montana. 
And, uh, and some of them have families and stuff. And it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do? Well, if you're getting paid $100,000 for less than a year of work, then, you know, you rent a house like a regular family does, you know? That's not a big deal. That problem is pretty much solved. Um, but, and then you just go to your working job, which is going to be a gardening. <laughs> but we couldn't yeah, get enough people. Okay, you ran into the problem. The people that you would most want to come and do this are the ones that are probably not, they're the least likely to be positioned to be able to uproot and come and do it. True. It, it, True. The ones that have, you know, really great gardening experience and, and could pull it off. Um, you know, you, boy, to get them to pick up and come and do that. Yeah. For those people who, um, who aren't familiar with the acronym GAMCA, that was the, uh, grow a million calories on dirt is, is that, uh, yeah, that acronym. Cause yeah. when Paul used the acronym the first time, I was like, what? And then he had, as soon as he told me what it meant, oh yeah, I remember, I remember the discussion around that. So that's, that's what, that we're talking about here. Right. And so we would have the five gardeners. They would each have an acre on the lab um, and an, an additional acre next to it to be like, yeah, you know, for supplies or whatever you want to keep next to your project. Sure. I mean, we got a lot of acres on the lab. Um, I thought it would be very exciting. I was just so super looking forward to it. Um Man, we got jazzed about the whole project. And uh I kept getting a lot of people asking me weird-ass questions about do I still get paid even if I really don't do any work? And, you know, things like that. And it was so odd. That was that was like some of the early signs of like, oh, we're not going to be able to pull this off, are we? Um But the bottom line is, is that we just, I thought we'd have like more than a hundred people sign up to be the gardener. And, uh, it was, you know, no, nowhere near that. And it was, so it's over. It's sad, but it's over. Um, anyway. All right. That's my bits and bobs list. Alan, do you have a bits and bobs thing you want to add to this podcast? Wow. Um, uh, I think we've, uh, I think we've, we've rolled through quite a bit of it. Um, you know, I'll just, I'll just say that, you know, what I'm continuing to work on at the moment is to continue to develop the integrated return to design framework, which is what I'm, what I've been doing is taking return to design science, a lot of the tools, uh, return to design tools from permaculture and continue to develop it into a uh, framework that adds other piece of parts that are needed in order for a group of professionals to do this kind of work at, at a larger scale. So, you know, the, the, the history of permaculture has, has been a lot of like single, you know, designers designing at a farm or homestead scale. And there's a whole different list of challenges that you run into when you're saying, Oh, well, we're going to develop a, you know, half a billion dollar project uh, at scale to develop you know, um, uh, infrastructure or, you know, a major development or, um, anything of that in that nature where you might have dozens of design professionals involved has to be different. So I've been uh, designing and putting together that framework, uh, of how to, um, how to 
have have folks come together and uh, have be able to use their professional design training uh, in service of a team, transdisciplinary team, pulling off large scale uh, regenerative projects. And uh, most everything we've seen so far in the real world has been just slightly less bad. You know, it, it, we try to make these green large scale projects and uh, what we've managed to do is make them less bad, but we've had a really hard time uh, getting to truly regenerative. And so that's what I'm shooting for. There's a lot of work ahead for you. Oh, yeah. There's a, I mean, I think permaculture itself has room for optimization. And, mm-hmm. and it's like, uh, but it's, it's been such a challenge just to kind of get things started. And I think even with the, with the information that we have now, the things that have been getting accomplished are profound. Um, and, and it's like, uh, but there's still room for optimization. I, I look forward to the version 2.0 and 3.0 of, of permaculture, which I believe is part of what you, sir, are working on. I'm trying to contribute, yes. So anything else you'd like to add at this time? I think I'm good. Okay. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com, where we talk about whatever the hell Alan Booker is doing these days. (laughs) Homesteading and permaculture all the time. Put Paul's brain on your plot. Do you have a hunk of land but don't know where to start? Do you have a world-changing permaculture idea and you need some feedback? Do you feel like the guy in overalls may inexplicably hold the keys to all your wildest permaculture and homesteading dreams? Well, you're probably wrong. But if you want to give it a go anyway, you can hire Paul for a consultation. He will be all yours for a whole entire hour. Schedule your Paul-versation today at permies.com slash consult. permies.com slash consult. 